up in verse 8 this morning. And uh, I'll be honest with you, in looking at this passage, I, I wanted to go past verse, well, from verse 8 through verse 20. And then I, I'm looking at verses 8 through 10, and there's really a lot there in 8 through 10, so we're not going to get past 8 through verse 10. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to stay it the way it is. We're not. Three verses today, verses 8, 9, and 10, uh, I, I think that we will be blessed going through this passage of Scripture. I encourage you guys to uh, uh, take advantage of the things that are going on that you heard Dan share from the bulletin. Take a look at the bulletin yourselves. And, uh, uh, you know, over the years, uh, I've been surprised at times when people will you know, we'll be talking about something, and I'll, I'll mention some kind of event that's coming up. Oh, really? I didn't know that. It's a, and it's like, you got a bulletin, right? You, you heard the announcement, right? Anyway, take heed to the things uh, that are there. You, these things are for your blessing, uh, for your growth in our Lord Jesus Christ, to become closer to him and walk with him in such a way that uh, you know his presence, the comfort and peace of his presence, but also the power of his life through you as you're a witness to, to him and who he is. So uh, pray that you'll take advantage of those things. And uh, speaking of that, uh, you know, and, and last Sunday we, we acknowledged it, but the women's conference that took place a week ago yesterday, that's an example uh, of those kinds of uh, events that are plan planned out for for you guys, so make sure that you take advantage of those opportunities. Would you guys stand with me? We're going to read those three verses, verses 8 through 10. I'm going to read them as you follow along in your Bibles, and I'm reading out of the New King James Version of God's Word, Acts 19, verses 8 to 10. This is speaking of Paul. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. I think we should just call him T-Rex for short. <laughs> Easy to remember. The school of Tyrannus. And this, this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia, let me read that again, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Father, we pray that as we look at this passage today, or that we will be encouraged as we read and, and talk about the things that you did in Ephesus nearly 2,000 years ago. Lord, might we imagine you doing the same thing here in the, in the Inland Empire, in San Bernardino County, in our nation? that all would truly hear the word of our Lord Jesus. So have your way with us, we pray. Pour out your spirit upon us. Might he, as our teacher, teach us today. Might he lead us into your truth. Might, might he glorify and magnify the name of our Lord Jesus. May he give us wisdom and discerning hearts to know how we are to respond to these truths today. And so, God, thank you for drawing us together to this place. We praise you now and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. And before I go on, Nathan, Diana, good to see you here this morning. God bless you. God bless you. They moved to Idaho like many people have done from California. But uh, it's good to see you guys here today. Okay. Um, as we begin this morning in verse 8 of chapter 19, 
we're picking up as the Apostle Paul, and we looked at the first seven verses of this chapter last week, uh, saw Paul arriving in the city of Ephesus and, and meeting 12 disciples who had not yet experienced the reality of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon them. Uh, that's one way to term it. Another way to term it is uh, being baptized with the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. A number of ways you can refer to that experience as we talked about last week. But he found them. Uh, they were uh, 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 baptized in water and then as well as being baptized with the Spirit. And then we just move on. We, we saw in verse 7, now, now the men were about 12 in all. And that's basically all, all we know about them. You know, we, we, we just simply know that they were disciples, and as Luke calls them. And we talked about that a great deal last week. And then in verse 8, and he went, Paul, of course, went into the synagogue and, and spoke boldly for three months. Now, we, we, we have grown accustomed to seeing this. We're now looking at Paul's third missionary journey. And he established from the beginning in his first missionary journey that any city he arrived in, uh, if there was a synagogue there, if there was a Jewish population that, that uh, warranted a synagogue, then he went into that synagogue first to give the word of God, to give the gospel to uh, the, the, the Jews in that synagogue, as well as those uh, Gentiles, uh, those Greeks, and even as we re read here in verse 10, both Jews and Greeks, what that means is Jews and um, Gentiles. You know, it doesn't mean that you had to live in Greece because even here in uh, Ephesus, that's in Asia. There are probably not a whole lot of people from Greece there in that church. It, it, it means Gentiles. So um, we, we see him going into those synagogues to speak to the Jews as well as the Gentiles who saw the God of the Jews as the true God and they wanted to worship him along with those Jewish people, God-fearers, we see them referred to in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. And so he went there to first give the gospel. Now, if you'll remember, back in the 18th chapter, he had been in Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey. It was basically a layover on his way to Jerusalem, on his way uh, to uh, uh, Syria, uh, and uh, he wanted to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the upcoming feast. He could not stay, but he said, Lord willing, I'll be back, and now he's back. He, he fulfilled his promise, and it obviously was the Lord's will for him to return, but they wanted him to stay there, so, so he had a reception there. I mean, you'll recall, I mean, here we see for three months he's speaking boldly in the synagogue. Uh, in Thessalonica, he only had the opportunity to do that for three weeks. You know, th that's an, an, an example. So in Ephesus, they were more, the, the Jews there were more open-minded to receive. But after three months, they'd had enough. They, they'd had enough. And we see there, as he was there, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God, that's a different way of saying that he went through the Old Testament, and when we talk about the kingdom of God, of course, Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God, but we know, and we, we see that Paul wrote about the fact that those who would enter into the kingdom of God, Jesus would speak of this, you must be born again. How are we born again? We're born from above. How does that take place? By acknowledging the reality that Jesus, as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God, died for our sins. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he's talking about those things, the reality that the kingdom of God can be entered into only through acknowledging that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, died for our sins, to take away our sins. As, as John the Baptist introduced Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. 
And so that is how we enter in. All who have faith in Jesus enter in. But all do not enter in. You know, there are some people who believe in a universalism and the fact that Jesus died for the sins of the world. That means all of the world enters into the kingdom of God. That is not true. We must place our faith in Christ, believing that he did these things. So that those are important things. But as he's there, he's there for three months, they had, they, they had an openness to these things. But because of the reality of the spiritual warfare that always is going on, and, and, and guys, do you realize that you are involved in spiritual warfare? Do you, involve, do, you, do you realize that? It's important too. We must understand and realize that we are involved in spiritual warfare. Now, I would say that there's probably not a person in this room who, when you acknowledge your need for Christ, that you also realize you were headed for warfare. I didn't realize that. Not at all. Unless perhaps you were maybe sitting in a church for a couple of years hearing these kinds of teachings and then finally gave your heart to the Lord after you heard those things, you know, but... By and large, that's not the case. We don't realize that. We don't find out about that until we are involved with the church for a while, involved with the Lord for a while, reading his word for a while, being taught about these things. But we are involved in warfare. Spiritual warfare is real. It reminds me of what the uh, couples ministry is going through uh, in the sense of the the, the book that they're using. they're, they're, They're using a book called Spiritual warfare in marriage. Those of you who are married or who who have been married, spiritual warfare. It's real there too, isn't it? It's real there too. But we are involved in warfare. And this warfare, this spiritual warfare, always is centered around the authority of God, the authority of his word, and the person of Jesus Christ. It's always revolving around that. You know, the very first time we see warfare taking place is back in the book of Genesis chapter 3 when we see that serpent saying to Eve, has God really said? Questioning the authority of God's word. It's still the same. And look around in, in our own culture. So many things are going on in which we see that the, the, the truth of God's word is being challenged, right? A, a number of the issues of the day. And, you know, our, our, our adversary is so clever. He, he, he brings these spiritual and moral issues into a place of politics. And, and he frames these things as political questions, political uh, uh, situations. And, you know, whether it's abortion, whether it's the the gay movement, which has made strides over the last couple of decades like crazy, the question of gender, you know, these kinds of things, they're issues of, 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 of truth. Not politics. Not that we shouldn't be politically involved in regard to the social reforms that need to take place in our country, but our enemy is very clever, very clever in the way that he does those things. But the warfare is extremely real. In the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the four gospels, we see that Jesus is seen as the Son of God, as the Messiah of God, as King, as Priest, as Prophet, as Savior, as God. And we see that he exercises his authority in the Gospels over a number of things, but four things in particular that I want to point out. He exercised, he showed, he manifested his authority over nature. 
I mean, after all, he created all things, right? And of course, he has authority over nature. So he did things like multiplying fish and bread. He did things like calming the seas. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, we see these words written by Matthew. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Good thing for a disciple to do, to follow Jesus. Right into the boat. But they didn't know where he was taking them. Right into the midst of the storm. And suddenly, a great tempest arose. Now, I didn't include in, these, in, in, in the, the passage I'm sharing that beforehand, the Lord Jesus said, let us cross over to the other side. He said, let us cross over to the other side. And so he got in the boat, they followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and, and, and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. I like the way, way Mark writes it. See, the, 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 the uh, apostle said to him, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? so easy when we're caught in the midst of a storm to start questioning whether or not God actually cares for us or not. Very natural thing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And that would have been an amazing thing to see. He rebukes, he speaks to the, the wind and the sea, and immediately they stop. It's not like the wind stopped and then the, the water is still sloshing around and then after a couple hours it got calm. It's like everything was calm like that. How amazing. And, and, and these guys were amazed. Uh, as he did that, verse 27 says, So the men marveled and uh, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Great question. There's only one answer to that. God the creator. That's who this is. Well, he also exercised his authority over the demonic realm. His authority over demons. After all, Jesus, as the second person of the Godhead, was a part of all creation. He created mankind. He created also angels. He created the universe. But he created angels. And guys, sometimes we have a tendency to think, and I think this is exactly what our enemy wants us to think, that somehow there is this battle going on, and, and, and it's like a, a, a championship fight, you know, where these two fighters who are so equal in their uh, uh, ability to fight and their strength and whatever that it's just like a knock-down, drag-out kind of a situation, and it's very suspenseful, suspenseful about who's going to win. This is not the case. Not at all. Jesus created Satan. And just the, the reality of what's, what creation means, the creator has dominion and authority and ownership over that which he has created. And so it's like, really? No, I mean, Satan does not have a chance. Now, it is true that in this world today, the reality is Satan is the god of this age. God has ultimate authority. He wields it, even as we saw here in these cases that I'm reading about. But... When it's time for God to move and do what he wants to do, Satan can't stop him. He cannot. He cannot. And if God has made you a promise, Satan cannot keep God from keeping that promise. Now, he can, in his, in his own scheming and in his own wisdom and the way that he, he schemes and so forth, he can make you think that he can, but he can't. 
He's a liar and has been from the beginning, as Jesus said in John 8. He'll make you think that he's, he can stop things. He'll make you think that things are different than what, what God said. But it's not different from what God said. What God says is going to happen is going to happen. It's going to happen. Well, Matthew 8, 28-32. When he had come, speaking of Jesus, of course, to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? A good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. One of the other accounts in, this, in the gospel says that there was about 2,000 of these swine. Now, this is the first time anybody ever heard of deviled ham. But here we go. They were destroyed. We also see Jesus had authority over sickness and disease. We know that he heals. Not only in the scriptures do we see him healing, we've seen it in our own lives. I've prayed for people who have received healing. I've seen tumors dissolved through prayer. I've seen that. On one occasion, a number of years ago, I want to be careful that I don't take too much time with this, but uh, I was ministering at uh, Chino Valley. I think it was before it was Chino Valley. We were still in Ontario at the time. So it was like in the, in the late 80s probably, maybe around 1990 or so, something like that. Um, one of the brothers in the church and I, I, I was called to uh, uh, pray for a young girl who had been hit by a car. She was in ICU. She was very serious. She was hooked up to all the machines, life support system, and so forth. And another brother uh, came with me to pray for her. And she honestly had the look of death on her face. I mean, just the ashen color, the sunken eyes, everything. Any of you who have seen that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we prayed, you know, and the machines were going, and we were hearing the beep, 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 and all that with the machines and so forth. And as we're praying, something happened. I mean, it's like the machines just kind of got, beep, beep, you know, kind of corrected itself. It's almost like a reboot kind of a thing. And I looked at this brother, and then we looked at this girl, and her appearance had changed. There was life in her face. It was incredible. And, and I mean, since that time, I, I, I've thought, Lord, what did you actually do? What actually happened there? W were we involved? In, and I, I want to be careful about this. I only know what I saw. I don't know what happened. But could it be that this girl actually was, was basically dead, being kept alive by the machines, and then the Lord put life in her? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't go around saying that I can raise the dead. But I really do wonder about that. I do. I, 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 one thing I know is that her countenance changed when that happened. That's what I know. God still does these kinds of things, guys, doesn't he? He still does. He still does. Luke 40 verses, er, Luke 4, excuse me, verse 40 and 41. When the sun was setting, all those who had any, excuse me, all those who had any that were sick and various diseases brought them to him, and he laid, on, laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. 
And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Just as a side note, it's unfortunate that there are not more people who know that he's the Christ. The demons do know. They know. We know. So many people don't. People who were created in the image of God don't acknowledge the reality of God. They don't re- acknowledge the reality of Jesus as the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh, being the Lamb of God and what he's done for us and who he is. Too many just simply don't know. As Jesus said in Matthew seven fourteen, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Tragic, but true. And we see that Jesus also exercised authority over even death itself. Luke 7, verses 11 to 15. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. This young man being buried, as Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. He sat up in his coffin and began to talk. Incredible. There are others, Lazarus, you know, the, um, the, the little girl that, uh, that, that he rose from the dead. Peter was involved in that as well. We see in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets, Elijah was involved with that. You know, these are things that God does as he exercises his authority. And we cannot forget, guys, we can't forget the authority of the one whom we worship. We cannot. In his sovereignty and his power, he moves. And we cannot also forget the reality of who he is. Now, the reason I'm, I'm going to this place with the spiritual warfare, we see Paul there in Ephesus reasoning in the synagogue for three months. He is uh, reasoning and persuading very persuasively, very articulately going to the Old Testament, God's truth about the kingdom of God. And when it comes to the reality of the prophesied Messiah and who that would be, when he claimed that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he pointed out the scriptures, he pointed out the life of Jesus, what he did, how he accomplished those things that only the Messiah would accomplish. He is indeed the Messiah. Many of them, as we see in verse 9, when they were, but, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of T-Rex. <laughs> you know, um, because they spoke evil of the way before the multitude, that means they got, got up in the synagogue before everybody and they spoke evil of this way. They were speak, speaking evil of Jesus, speaking evil of the way that he had established. Which means that when it says in verse 8 that he spoke boldly concerning the things of the kingdom of God, he was bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he was doing. They didn't get it. They were hardened. Hardened toward the truth of God's word. But guys, the things that 
Paul does in Ephesus. And the following verses, 11 to 20, basically cite a a number of incredible uh, miracles that take place through his ministry. God, of course, doing these miracles through him. But this is the foundation. Verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10, that's the foundation, the preaching and teaching of the truth of God's word. That's the foundation for any ministry. Whether it may be a ministry that includes miracles or not. And I have to say that any valid ministry is going to include miracles in some way. Not that we are miracle workers, but the God who we worship is. Right? And so he functions in that way as he chooses to do so. As he pours out his grace and his mercy upon people. His people primarily. But the proclamation of God's word. There is an inherent power in God's word. That power is unleashed when his word is proclaimed. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Has that ever happened to you guys? Reading God's word or hearing God's word and then there's that, that cutting that takes place, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and of the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Bible is the only book that you will ever read that actually reads you. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. No creature. Not you, not me, not anyone. The most firm atheist is not hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped. You want to be equipped to minister? You want to be equipped to help people? You want to be equipped to serve? The Word of God. Get more and more of the Word of God within you. Now, there's the power of God's Spirit that goes along with that. He enables us with His power, but linked to the truth of God's Word and who God is, and what he does, who we are, what the world is like, the need of people around us, and then the power of God's spirit, and and, and the gifts that he may give to us. I mean, it's like, that's what we need. We need God's word to be thoroughly equipped. Then in the following verses in 2 Timothy, going to the fourth chapter, verses 1 and 2, we see Paul giving, giving a charge, a command, To young Timothy, he says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. The teaching of the word of God. And this is why it is so tragic that we see in so many pulpits on a given Sunday morning at a supposed Christian church the word of God is not being preached a lot of stories and you know a a lot of jokes and a lot of things that are going to keep people coming back now you know we we can have fun we can talk about deviled ham and things like that and have a laugh and so forth that's okay to do that but it's the teaching and preaching of God's word That's what brings wholeness. That's what brings life. That's what brings anything that God wants to bring to us in conjunction with, of course, the reality of the Spirit of God. To these same Ephesians, Paul would later write about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. 
which included the final piece of armor being not a piece of armor really, but an offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We're in warfare. No soldier will go into warfare without his sword in this day. Without whatever weapon the, the uh, uh, country that you're serving may give to you, may assign to you, you got to have that. Along with the other weapons. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. A familiar passage, but listen to this, guys. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, these are different ways of speaking about God's word. The law of the Lord, that's God's word. The testimony of the Lord, that's God's word. The statutes of the Lord, verse 8, that's God's word. Our right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord. God's word is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Guys, do we here this morning desire the word of God more than much fine gold? It's a question every one of us has got to ask ourselves. What's more valuable? The word of God or your bank account? Your retirement account? The home that you own? You own nothing. I don't care how rich you may be. Jeff Bezos does not own anything more valuable than what we have right here. Nothing. I don't care how many billions of dollars he may have. When he comes face to face with his maker, the Lord's not going to ask him, so how much money did you have? Let me see if you have the minimum requirement. What did you do with Jesus? That's the question. And so as we cling to his truth, we do that for protection in this warfare that we're involved in. We, we, we cling to his, his word, his truth for deliverance from the destruction in this world. So Paul spoke, that's our introduction, by the way. Paul spoke the word boldly in this synagogue for three months, and after three months, they had had enough. Their hearts were hardened, and they didn't believe. They spoke evil of Jesus. They spoke evil of his way, which became the term for the church, those who were following the way, those who were walking in the way. Of course, Jesus said, I am the way. He doesn't just show us the way. He is the way, but we follow him on that way. We follow him on the path that he walked. So we're called the way. In that day, that, that's what it was. They spoke evil of it, and so Paul basically said, okay, I'm out of here. Come on, guys, let's go. And those who were disciples of Jesus left with them. That would include, the disciples would include those Jews and God-fearers who came to faith in Christ during that three-month period. They left. And they went to some guy's school called Quirinus. Now, whether he was a teacher, philosopher, we don't really know. Uh, he could have been an owner of a building in which there was teaching taking place. Some translations call it uh, not the school of Tyrannus, but the hall or the lecture hall of Tyrannus, a place where teaching took place. The culture was such that 
and it's obvious that this is going on with, with Kieranus because of, of things that we see in, in, in other sources. Um, there would be the teaching that would take place up to 11 o'clock in the morning. In fact, that was kind of the way that they did work. We, we know that in some parts of the world, uh, in, in Spain, for example, you go to Spain and then there's a, uh, there's a time for a siesta from like 2 to 4 in the afternoon, right? Similar kind of a thing. In the heat of the day, they're in the Middle East, off the Mediterranean, you know, it gets really hot. So from 11 o'clock, they stop working. They get up early. They do, they do a few hours of work from 11 till about 4 in the afternoon. And then at 4, they get back to work. So they take that time off. They have their siesta and so forth, have their lunch, and then, you know, and, 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 and then they get back to work. And, and so during that five-hour period, that's when Paul would have been doing his teaching, reasoning daily in the school of Kyrenus. It has been written that in that part of the world, at that time, there were probably, that there, that there were, no, that, that there were more people who were sleeping at 1 p.m. than at 1 a.m. Because of this culture thing that, that they did. And so, Paul did this for a period of three years. After these Jews' hearts got hardened, and I, I want to kind of mention this idea about hardening. Yeah, I mean, you, got, you guys know the idea of hardening, right? You know, it's just the heart such that it will not receive the implanted word. You know, in, in, in Matthew 13, when Jesus was speaking about the, giving the parable of, of the uh, soils, uh, the seed in the soils. He said in verse 19 there in chapter 13, when, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom as he's explaining it and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in the, his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. In the parable itself, Jesus said that, you know, there are those who the seed is, is, is sown, but some goes on the wayside. That means the road, the walkway. You know, it's like they didn't have pavement, but the dirt was very hard. Because people are trampling on it, animals going by, carts and so forth. And it's just hard. You can't plant seed there. You, know, you have to have land that is soft. It, it's been furrowed and so forth, you know, and, and, and been tilled and, and everything made ready for the implanted seed so that it can take root. Well, their hearts were like that, would not receive the word of God. And, and, and I, I do wonder how many are sitting in churches this morning with hearts like that. You're playing the game, coming to church because, well, that's what I should do. Coming to church because, well, that's what my wife wants me to do. Coming to church because, well, it's good for business to be at church. You know, people, people know I'm going to church. I, I've seen presidents, certain presidents of our country walking out of churches with a Bible in their hand on the news on Sunday night. And I'm thinking, I hope they receive something truly from God today. But the actions that take place on Monday indicate that no, they did not. You know what I mean? Why are we here? Are we really here to worship God. We know that Paul was in Ephesus for about three years. He said in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every, everyone night and day with tears. He's speaking to the elders from Ephesus there in that passage. Interestingly, in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, this is towards the end of it with his final greeting, verses 8 and 9, he says this, and he wrote this from, from Ephesus. He says, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. You know, Paul, Paul writes that in such a way, it's like, the reason I know there's an effective door open to me is because it's really hard, man. There are a lot of adversaries. 
where the word of God is being taught and where people are following the Lord and love the Lord, the enemy is there to try to move us away from that place. That's the nature of our spiritual warfare. That's the nature of our spiritual warfare. And then we're told here that all of Asia, verse 10, this continued for two years there in Kiranas. It had been three months there in this, this synagogue, a total of about three years, according to Paul, in writing to uh, the Corinthians, excuse me, in speaking to the, the uh, elders from, from Ephesus, uh, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, all who dwelt in Asia. There are a number of churches that we know about in Asia that must have been founded during this time. We've got the, the seven churches of Revelation, for example. Ephesus being one of them. Then we've got Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. We see in the book of Colossians, Paul writing to the Colossians, and we see through what he wrote there that he did not go to Colossae to found the church. He, in writing his letter, he had not been there. They had not seen his face. But we see a couple of passages there. Col Colossians 1, 7 and 8. Paul writes, As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Uh, Epaphras apparently uh, was a man who, from Colossae, was in Ephesus. He heard Paul's teaching. He gave his heart to Christ, went back to Colossae, started a Bible study, but started a church there in Colossae. And then going on. Colossians 2.1, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, so uh, Colossae and Laodicea, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Right? He hadn't been there. Colossians 4.12 and 13, Epaphras, who is one of you, from Colossae, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, so he's with Paul as he writes this letter to the Colossians, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and, and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis, two, two communities where a church was founded apparently by Epaphras, out of Ephesus. And so in that way, men were taking God's word to various cities through Asia and churches were being born and people were hearing the word of God. Many of them, of course, getting saved. This is what happens in healthy churches. People spreading the word of God. And as healthy as Ephesus was, it's interesting to see that later Jesus would write a letter to Ephesus. We see it in the second chapter of Revelation. In verses 4 and 5, he says to the church of Ephesus, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have, what? Left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Basically meaning he will basically end the church. It's interesting that since Paul had visited Athens in the first part of chapter 18, Paul established two churches, Corinth and Ephesus, spending 18 months in Corinth, three years in Ephesus, and then churches springing up in, in Asia because of that. But guys, the word of God, there's an, there is an inherent power in God's word. We began by looking at that. I want to remind you that in Job chapters 1 and 2, Job 1, 11, we see Satan speaking to, to, to God. We, we know how that all works. You know, the, the Lord said to Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? 
and basically say, he says, yeah, you've protected him so much. No wonder he worships you. You need to take some things away from him. He'll curse you to his face. That's what we see in Job 1.11. But now stretch out your hand, Satan saying to God, and touch all that he has. He'll surely curse you to his face. And then Job 2.5, after the first round of, of temptations against the things that, that, that Job had, I mean, he lost his business, lost everything he had, lost his 10 children. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to his face. God gave him permission to touch his body, but not to take his life. In all these things, we see that Job did not sin against the Lord. I believe that in this warfare that we are involved in, this is what Satan wants to do with us. He wants us to get to a point where we will blaspheme the Lord. Somehow, some way. That's what it's about. It's not about you and me being bothered. He wants to bother us enough so that we will question God and his goodness. Really, God, your word says this. I'm not sure if I believe this anymore, for example. He wants us to question. Even the word of God that we know is absolutely true speaks of his goodness. Sometimes we question his goodness because we go through a bad time. God help us. Let's understand the schemes of the devil. He wants to move us from total and complete faith in God, loving him and honoring him in our lives. You guys know that I'm going through a tough time right now with my wife. We had, we had a tough week. You know, as I mentioned earlier, just seeing the progression of this disease. It's getting closer and closer. I, I, I'm, I'm watching, I'm basically watching the Lord prepare her body for the removal of her from it. All right? You know, and, and every one of us in this room who are married and are devoted to the reality of, the, of, of the, both partners being devoted to the vow that we took until death do us part, we're headed to that place if the Lord carries till death do us part. And one of you is going to be in my position. The other is going to be in my bride's position. That's just reality. As I'm looking around, I, I see a number of people who have already experienced that. That's life in this world. doesn't mean God's not good. In the Psalms, we see God saying that Oh, gosh, I'm, I didn't intend on telling you this. You didn't write it down, so I put it under there. I can't remember exactly what it says in here. God takes great pleasure. Yeah, God takes great pleasure in the death of his saints. Why? Because we're going to be with him. His saints. Those who place their faith in Jesus. Because we're going to be with him. I am so thankful to God that he has given me his word to cling to, his truth to cling to. And I just want to encourage every one of you in this room. Some of you are going through some things now. Some of you have gone through things in the past and will continue to go through other things in the future. Maybe right now things are kind of settled. Warfare is not over. We need God's word. I'm so thankful God has given me an understanding that I believe his word, that I believe everything that he says is true. I understand the way that this world is. I understand the ways of Satan, but I understand the ways of God. And he has done his work to deliver us from this world and you know what? My wife and I are going to be standing together worshiping God throughout all eternity. We're going to have brand new bodies. I am not going to say goodbye to her. I'm going to say, I'll see you when I get there. 
That's because of the reality of faith in God. His word gives me strength, gives me hope, gives me joy, gives me peace, deliverance, gives me an understanding of the things that I see going around me and even an understanding to some degree what I see taking place now. I get it. I didn't realize it was going to take place this soon. My bride just turned 69. By today's standards, that's young. It's young. The Lord has seen fit to do this. Now, I've not yet given up hope that he's not going to heal her. I pray for it every day. He may still do that. All indications tell me that he won't, but he still may. I pray for that. God's word, God's word just gives me the strength, gives me joy. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that, speaking of Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. I think that applies to me and you as well, for the joy that's before us. The joy of heaven, the joy of eternity, the joy of being with him, the, the, the joy of all that, it gives us strength to endure the pain in this world. So it's a very bittersweet thing. I weep. But God gives me strength. He gives me hope. Guys, this this world is a battleground. Spiritual warfare is taking place. We must be armed with the word of God, among other things, if we are going to successfully navigate this world in honor of him. Our adversary wants to destroy us. But 1 John 3, 8 tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. I know who wins that one. And I'm following him. We're following him, aren't we? Let's praise him forevermore. Let's stand fast. It's a battle. But in the end, we've read the end of the book. We understand what's going to happen. Let's remain steadfast. And Father, help us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Enable us, strengthen us to cling to him always, to cling to the truth of your word. He is our overcomer. I know that because you've told us that in your word. Jesus, that's what you've said. I have overcome the world. Thank you. As we walk with you in difficult times at at times, Lord, difficult things that we have to go through. The nature of this world. But Lord, you have given us Jesus to overcome the things in this world. As we sang earlier, death is defeated. You have defeated death, Lord Jesus. For every one of us who have seen loved ones pass on to you, go into your presence, Lord, we, we realize the reality of the fact that you defeated death, that they could be with you even now. If things go the way that they appear in the next number of months, I'll, I'll be seeing the same take place with my precious bride. Thank you for what you've done for her. Know that that's what's going to happen. Thank you that I know you've done that for everyone in this room who placed their faith in you. You've done it for me. Thank you. And so, Lord, with that understanding, with that knowledge, um, be with us. Have your way with us. 
May we live our lives to give praise to you, raising the hallelujah even in the midst of the storm. And louder and louder we will cry out, praise the Lord, hallelujah, because you are worthy of all our praise. So we give ourselves to you, have your way with us, our loved ones, you're in your hand. Do with us as you will. And Lord, as the song declares, may it be well with our soul. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.